0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. So before I get to my guest today, I want to say a few words about my recent podcast with Yusuf Munair. In general, I wanted to speak to Yusuf more than I did about the events of October 7th and the war between Israel and Hamas. It was clear that Yusuf didn't want to dwell too much on those topics, but instead wanted to give his take on the history of the conflict, which is okay, but not exactly what I was looking for. More importantly, though, Yusef made a claim in our conversation that was factually inaccurate, and I need to correct the record here. We were talking about Israel's unilateral withdrawal from Gaza in 2005, and Yusef said, and I'll quote him at length, he says, quote, If you look at the explanation for the withdrawal, and this is something that was documented in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz back in 2004-2005, I'd encourage people listening to this to go back and read Ariel Sharon's advisor, Dove Weissglass, who explained the logic behind the withdrawal at the time. He did not say, we're withdrawing because we want to move towards peace with the Palestinians. Actually, he said the exact opposite of that. He said, we are withdrawing from Gaza to stop any movement towards peace. We want to be able to point to Gaza as a place that we are going to ensure is a failure as a reason not to withdraw from the West Bank, end quote. Okay, so that's what Yusuf said. Unfortunately, that's not remotely what Dove Weissglass actually said, as my friend Noam Dorman kindly pointed out to me. The interview is from 2004, and I'll include a link to it in the show notes. What Dove Weissglass actually says is that, for years, he and Sharon wanted to make peace with the Palestinians based on a two-state solution. But at some point, they realized they had no negotiating partners on the other side of the table, and only then, after years of sincere effort, did they decide to withdraw unilaterally and end what he calls the political process, by which he means negotiations. Weissglass doesn't say anything about ensuring that Gaza is a failure. He's saying that after years of sincere effort, they realized that the Palestinians were not really trying to reach a deal. And only at that point did they realize that staying at the negotiating table, where they would be asked to concede to small odds and ends, was actually pointless and self-destructive. So that's my paraphrase. Here's the direct quote from the interview. We reached that conclusion after years of thinking otherwise, after years of attempts at dialogue. But when Arafat undermined Abu Mazen at the end of the summer of 2003, we reached the sad conclusion that there is no one to talk to, no one to negotiate with. Hence the disengagement plan. Because when you're playing solitaire, when there is no one sitting across from you at the table, you have no choice but to deal the cards yourself." So the idea of ensuring Gaza is a failure, that just appears nowhere in the interview. And the overall context of the interview undermines the point that Youssef was trying to make, which is that Israel was trying to prevent peace by withdrawing from Gaza. Just to be clear, I sent Youssef the whole interview and pointed out the factual error so that I could give him a chance to respond, but he told me that he didn't have enough time to go through the original interview, though I gave him many, many days. So he stands by his initial summary, which is wrong from what I can tell. Uh, But just so you all know, I'm not blindsiding Youssef with this fact check. Okay, so my guest today is Rory Stewart. Rory Stewart is a British politician, diplomat, and author who served as a member of parliament from 2010 to 2019. He held several governmental positions, notably as a Secretary of State for International Development in 2019, and was known for his extensive work in Afghanistan and Iraq. Rory has authored several books, such as The Places in Between, about his solo walk across Afghanistan, and his new book, Politics on the Edge a memoir from within. Rory and I talk about what he learned by walking across Afghanistan. We talk about the war in Afghanistan and what lessons Israel might take from it. We talk about Brexit. We talk about why the Scandinavian model is not appropriate for Britain. We talk about the culture of the world of politics. And finally, we talk about why Rory is so passionate about give directly, which allows people to give cash directly to the people in the developing world. So without further ado, Rory Stewart. Okay, Rory Stewart, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you for having me. So uh, we were just chatting before we started about how you get guests to open up and give, um, you know, non-standard answers. So hopefully you could do me a favor and and do that. I'll I'll try my best. Yeah, yeah.
1: for for (laughs) listeners who who weren't in the pre-pre-podcast conversation, I'm interviewing Arnold Schwarzenegger tomorrow. And I'm trying to work out because he's obviously been interviewed, I don't know. 10,000 times. How on earth does one get someone like that to actually say anything interesting?
0: I have to imagine that there's an angle into him vis-a-vis your experience in politics as an outsider and his experience in politics as an outsider that if you, I mean, there's got to be some meeting of the minds there. Yeah, Like that's an angle where you can interview him in a way that very few people could.
1: No, that would be good. And then it's, then I think what you're saying to me is having the self-confidence to do that. Yeah. Because usually when I'm interviewing someone, I'm so desperate not to talk too much.
0: and
1: mm. just get my question out and mm. hide in the background. Mm. But maybe you're right. I need to lean more into who I am rather than just be any old interviewer. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially someone with as, as unique a story as you, uh, speaking of which, you know, you, uh, a major part of your stories that you spent, you know, over a year walking through India, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan. This is, uh, not a typical thing your average person has done. It's quite a remarkable thing, in fact. And I'm curious, you know, what do you learn by walking through a place that you don't learn by, say, driving or by just, you know, going town to town from a uh, with a normal mode of transportation? Yeah.
1: Well, thank you. So, t- just a bit of background on that. So, I was 28 years old, and I took two years off off work, and I walked for just over a year and a half. I stayed in. 550 different village houses between turkey and bangladesh i walked 20 25 miles a day and i crossed afghanistan just after 9 11 so uh, just after the taliban had fallen before the new government had taken over and i was obviously a young man and i think what i thought i was going to take from it was a sense of this line of footprints stretching behind me that i'd be able for the rest of my life to sort of remember because i walked six thousand miles Mm. and i don't know my god let's and maybe I'd be able to remember 10 million foot footsteps. But of course I can't. I can't remember most of the landscape now. But what I did take away from it is the insight into the village houses I stayed in and just how different people's lives were. And I'd been a British soldier and a British diplomat, and I was about to go to work in Iraq and then back in Afghanistan. And this walk totally transformed the way I saw those societies. Suddenly, for the first time, I really understood that the way that we were talking about these people bore no relationship to the reality of their lives. And so just to finish on that, I walked across Afghanistan the winter of 2001, 2002. I was in villages where usually most of the women had never been more than two hours' walk from their village in their life. Mm. So the place I'd come from that morning had no relationship to their existence, Mm. where maybe in a community one out of 100 people could read or write, where villages were in vendettas, war with their neighbours. They couldn't walk from one village to another without getting killed where village chiefs were complete dominant powers, where opium poppy was being grown. And I turn up in Kabul and I see my former colleagues, diplomats, United Nations people, and they say every Afghan is committed to a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, the rule of law. And I thought, I can't even (laughs) translate this into Dari. I don't know how you'd say that Mm. to someone in one of these villages. And that very simple insight about the gap between the, the kind of way we talk and what the reality was like on the ground, Defined at least the next 10, if not 20 years of my life. Mm.
0: So is this where you got your uh, policy towards Afghanistan, your recommendation, which you argued for 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 many, many years of a a light touch, as you call it, a light touch sustained over a long period of time, as opposed to the Obama strategy, which was a heavy touch with a deadline. Yeah. How does that connect back to your on the ground experience?
1: Yeah, thank you. So firstly, you're right. instincts in Afghanistan were that we had done a good thing, helping Afghans to get rid of the Taliban. But the point is, it was helping Afghans to get rid of the Taliban. That initial so-called invasion in 2001, basically a few hundred American soldiers, that was an Afghan movement. And my sense was that we needed to let an Afghan government with Afghan elections and an Afghan army run the country with a little bit of support behind But that if we made the mistake of trying to micromanage, get into every province, rebuild, and my goodness, we began to do this. We ended up, the US and its allies, and it reached the search under Obama, but it was happening in the lead up to that. Ended up with 150,000 soldiers on the ground, 150,000 civilian contractors, $1.7,000 billion of expenditure. I mean, just beyond imagining. And by doing it, we made Afghans feel they were living under a foreign military occupation. Villagers were seeing these people turning up like RoboCop out of these Humvees and this mm. incredible kind of armoured suits with guns, and of course a lot of people being killed. And I think that was the recruiting for the Taliban. The Taliban had vanished very quickly, 2002, 3, four, five. it was not coming back. We made it come back, we gave them the legitimacy, we gave them the thing to fight against. Then in 2014, the surge stopped and we went down to very small troop numbers. And that's what Biden inherited. Biden inherited about two thousand five hundred American troops left in Afghanistan. Tiny number. Twenty-five thousand American troops in South Korea, for example, to put it in context. Mm. Not a single American soldier had been killed for eighteen months. Not a single British soldier had been killed for six years. They were in these bases and the Taliban was nowhere. But what had been lit through the surge was the drive to withdrawal. And exactly what i was worried about happened which we were going to lurch to a massive troop increase and then we were going to abandon the country entirely and hand it back to the talman which is where we ended up
0: so how, how did the surge lead inexorably to the withdrawal
1: because i think it's unsustainable mm. i think if you start putting in that kind of money those kinds of numbers of troops once that number of people have been killed people are like whoa If you had held a few troops with very few casualties, the Afghan government in the lead, you could have remained there almost forever, which is what, of course, the U.S. has done in South Korea, been in South Korea since the 1950s, late 1940s. Nobody worries about U.S. troops in South Korea or Japan.
0: So knowing everything you know now about how the pullout was mishandled, how we abandoned our allies, the horrific scenes at the airport with uh, mothers literally trying to hand their babies, Mm. would you say it would have been better if we hadn't gone in at all? Or do you still think our intervention, uh, as problematic as it was, was a net good?
1: I don't think in the end it was a net good, I'm afraid. Mm. I don't think you can justify. Mm. We we literally went into a country controlled by a Taliban government, spent $1,700 billion, $1.7 trillion, and left and handed the country back to the Taliban again. I don't think there is any way you can defend that. I, I think it's completely indefensible. And and Iraq is an even deeper mess.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, Iraq is sort of beyond imagining. matching. I was in Iraq again last February. It's so strange. I mean, I, I don't know how many Americans go back to Iraq now. You drive from the airport. And the first thing you see is a huge sign attacking the American government with a monument made out of a vehicle which was hit by an American drone strike on the airport road. It's kind of the biggest monument as you come in. You drive all the way up to Mosul past sign after sign attacking the United States. That was That's the result of what was achieved after goodness knows how many thousands of American soldiers were killed, tens of thousands of Iraqis killed, again, trillions of dollars invested.
0: Mm. So it's, it's it's madness. So. Many people right now, um, we're speaking right now uh, in, in late October, uh, a few weeks after the attack on Israel by Hamas, and many people are drawing parallels between uh, the kind of warfare we did in Iraq um, and the kind of warfare the IDF is likely going to have to do in Gaza if if they do begin. The ground invasion. Do you think that there are lessons to be drawn from Iraq and Afghanistan that are applicable to Israel right now? And the, the last piece of this is many people have said that this is Israel's 9-11. Some people have even pointed out that it actually is equivalent to several 9-11s for is- Israel given their population and the psychological effect of how many people in a given community know someone personally affected by a tragedy. So do you think there are lessons to be drawn from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, for Israelis right now?
1: Oh, i i I think deep, deep lessons, I mean, I think think we're in such a polarized, divided time on this issue about Israel and Hamas at the moment we're speaking, I think it's important before I say anything else to say Hamas mounted a horrifying terrorist attack, that it is unimaginable what was done to those families and what's happening now to those hostages. At the same time, a ground invasion of Gaza would be the most terrible mistake. Every time a civilian's killed, and there will be lots of civilians killed, you can't fight your way through an urban area like that without a huge amount of collateral civilian casualties. It's a social media gift to Hamas and will be seen all over the world in an instant and will deepen the hatred, deepen the violence between Palestinians and Israelis in a way that we can't begin to imagine until it starts, which is why I'm very, very pleased that so far Israel has held off because, yes, there are so many lessons from Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, the US and its allies fought through Fallujah, horrifying up warfare in 2004, but perhaps more relevant. Was Mosul, which, as I said, I, I saw last February, still in ruins. Hospitals jammed dammed into the ground because they were hosting bomb factories. It's the most depressing place. I mean, it, the, the fighting there was 2014, 15, 16. It hmm. took them almost two, three years to clear ISIS out. And it it literally looks like, I don't know, Stalingrad, the photographs of these cities in the Second World War that have been bombed to pieces. And it's never going to recover. I mean, tens of billions of dollars would have to be spent beginning to get it back on its feet again. So I just can't see how that's going to work. I can't see it as anything other than a deeply destructive, radicalizing force. And it's tragic. And it's very difficult when you're asked this kind of question, not Mm. to say, I wouldn't be starting from here. Mm. How on earth did we get ourselves into the situation where these are the only options available now? I can understand that Israelis listening to this will say, well, what are we supposed to do? We can't have Hamas living on our border being able to mount this kind of attack again. And
0: they're going to say, if we we don't do a ground invasion or don't take really drastic action, we're basically having a situation of no deterrent signal for them to just do this again. And yes, it will uh, radicalize, but look how radical they are already. Exactly. Which is exactly what people will say, to which I would say, no,
1: you've done enough. Israel has dropped in the first four days, dropped six thousand bombs on Gaza. The entire Libyan intervention was seven thousand bombs. To put that in context, you know, nobody watching what's happened to Gaza over the last week in the Arab world is thinking there's no deterrence. Israel doesn't respond when things happen. Mm. I don't think Israel now showing some restraint is going to sort of embolden the hand of Hamas. The Hamas government has been broken. Gaza has been smashed to pieces tens of billions of dollars worth of damage have been done. People's lives are immeasurably worse. There will be many, many Palestinians looking at Hamas saying, what the F have you done to us? Yeah. I don't think you need to mount a ground invasion now to make that point.
0: Yeah. Let's pivot a little bit. Let's pivot to Britain. Not only did you walk, you know, all across South Asia and in the Middle East, you also walked from Scotland to Penrith, right? <laughs> so this is, uh, this is also interesting. What I have the same question. What did you learn on that walk that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily just learn by driving around? Well, so to explain that,
1: that's the next stage of my life. So I was briefly a soldier and infantry officer. Then I was a diplomat, served in Iraq and Afghanistan. I then went off, I then set up a non-profit, set up a charity, working in Kabul for three years, rebuilding the old city of Kabul. Then I went to a Harvard as a professor. And then in 2010, I came back to uh, run for the British Parliament and... Penrith, where I walked to from Scotland, is this wonderful district, this constituency on the English-Scottish border, the largest, most sparsely populated constituency in England, including the Lake District and Hadrian's Wall. It um, keeps struggling for what the American equivalent would be, but I don't know, Wyoming or Vermont or something, like a kind of highly rural, mm. very beautiful, remote place with very few people <laughs> living in it. And so I walked through it. And I walked through it because I felt that the way to learn about the area to try to represent people was to stay with them, be in their houses, walk alongside them, visit their farms, visit every one of the villages and hamlets in my constituency. I walk through every one because um, it's how I, how I learn. It's how I get a feeling for a place, how I remember a place. Mm-hmm. And there, genuinely, I was able to remember a bit. It was good right. to be able to say, if somebody could say to me, you know, how about, I don't know, Skirith, I'd say, oh, yeah, there was that guy, Tom, mm-hmm. who I stayed with at the corner, and then there was that toy shop, and then there's that farm at the end. with that. Um yeah helpful for me.
0: And uh, where did you grow up?
1: So I was born in Hong Kong. Okay. So my father was a British diplomat and a soldier as well. And then in Malaysia. And uh, it was very strange when I was running to be mayor of London, hmm. people would say to me, but you're not, you're not a real Londoner. And I'd say, listen, I wasn't born in the United Kingdom. 50% of people in London were not born in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. I'm proud to represent them. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So I have to imagine um, the the district you walk through is quite different than London.
1: Very different to London. But I'm, I'm a Scot, so I come from a right. sheep, sheep farming area in Northern Scotland, so it's less different to that. Got it. Which is what I was connecting by these two. And I'm somebody who has a deep, deep love of rural areas, of small family farms. I'm very romantic. Mm -hmm. I love history and I had the whole of Hadrian's Wall, this great ancient Roman frontier running through my, half of it running through my constituency Mm. and these amazing castles and forts. And so it's funny being British because we live, this is something I've I've just written a book called How Not To Be A Politician, which Mm -hmm. is just, just published. And part of the book is about writing about how as a politician you find your... What is it you're representing? What is the country you're standing for? Because, of course, you're standing for individuals and all the individual people who vote for you and those that don't vote for you. That's really important. You're representing the people who don't vote for you as well as the people who vote for you. So the kind of fundamental truth, and you're trying to understand them. But you're also representing an even stranger thing called a country. What What is a country, you know, beyond its flag? And for me, landscape is a very important part of that. History is a very important part of that. Tradition is a very important part of that.
0: Mm. I was talking to a British acquaintance about a month ago, and he said that one of the questions he ponders most is that, uh, what story does Britain represent? What story can a young Brit be proud of today? And the way he framed it was that several generations ago, the story a Brit would be proud of would be the sun never sets on the empire. And, uh, and this is just, you know, taken for granted as the story to be proud of, that story is not one that most are proud of anymore for for many good reasons. And he was trying to tell a kind of post-World War II version of the British story that is something, uh, a force for good in the world of a different kind. What is the kind of story that you feel a young uh, British person today might tell? Well, firstly, I mean, I think
1: what your friend said is very important. Our national identity for 200 years was arranged around this sense of, as you say, I don't know, whatever it was supposed to be, a quarter of the world being painted pink, being part of the British Empire. And then when that faded, our national story became very much about standing up for Hitler during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Winston Churchill, and we you know, produced all these war movies, and we're incredibly proud that we, with the United States and, and the Soviet Union, stood against Hitler when The rest of Europe fell, and this was a really important part of our defining identity. But you're right. For very good reasons, we turn away from empire because it was a racist, exploitative project. We also, for good reasons, don't really want to be defined by war anymore. You know, there's a, it was a good war. It's good to fight Hitler, but equally, a society 75 years after a war can't define itself by the fact we did well in the Second World War because the people who fought in the Second World War are mostly dead now. Mm -hmm. And anyway, we don't live in that kind of society. We're not a, a militarized society. The ideal British man, probably, for a lot of our history, was a soldier. And we're now in a society where almost nobody joins the military. It's not a, much less than in the United States, actually. Veterans in the U.S. still have a very big status because you are a kind of empire. Mm. You're a kind of superpower. Right. And therefore, you know, I noticed there are big movements to get more veterans into Congress and all this kind of stuff going on. Yeah. And then you stand in a, a line in the U.S. and you veterans are kind of asked to go first when you're boarding yeah, yeah. an airplane. Veterans
0: always board first, yeah. Yeah,
1: this kind of, so there's none of that stuff in Britain. Mm-hmm. We're not that kind of society at mm-hmm. all anymore. And so what are we? I think we are a society that wants to be many different and contradictory things. I think it's important to understand our geographical diversity. So, and then I'll talk about what unifies the so geographical diversity. If you're a Scot, you're proud of being, in your minds, less pompous than the English, less boring than the English. You think you're funnier than the English. (laughs) Uh, If you are living in a rural area of England, uh, in a traditional community, you probably pride yourself on being polite, understated, having a stiff upper lip and bits of strange tradition, whether it's your love of strange dishwater called English tea or whether it's, you know, walking in the mountains. If you're somebody living in London, it is about embracing one of the great multicultural cities on earth. As I say, you know, 50% of people here were not born in the United Kingdom. It's about the fact that we are very, very proud that with all the problems that we have in written, in some ways that we are making more of a success of a very, very multicultural society than anyone almost anyone else on earth. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have a cabinet now that is one of the most ethnically diverse cabinets of any governing group in the world. Our prime minister is of Asian extraction, our home secretary, our foreign secretary, etc. Yeah. And mayor of London is a is a Pakistani. I mean, it's, it, this is an amazing change over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. Unimaginable. Yeah. I also think that Brits would pride themselves on... Irony, sense of humor, self-deprecation. We are very proud of our video game industry. We're very proud of our music industry. We're very proud of our soccer, our football. But what holds it together? That's the different thing. So there's a different things. Right. I mean, somebody who's proud of video games and soccer isn't necessarily having a a direct conversation with a woman who's interested in her cup of tea in the Yorkshire Valley. Right. And multi-ethnic, multi-ethnic diverse parts of Britain are not necessarily having a good conversation with white bits of Britain. Any more than I guess, uh, I don't know, Mississippi is having an easy conversation with New York. So what, what holds the whole thing together? Well, in our case, it's not a flag. It's not a constitution because we already have a constitution and our flag is a sort of very strange thing, doesn't make much sense. It's very, very odd, tenuous ideas of certain kinds of values, which I think British people believe very strongly, but they find difficult to articulate. And they're very... I think British modesty is misleading. I think they're incredibly self-confident people at some level, a bit like Americans and probably a bit like the French and a bit like the Indians, a bit like the Chinese. They think they're the best country on earth, but they don't really want to say this to anyone. And they don't really understand why everybody else doesn't realize that they're the best country on earth.
0: (laughs) It's different with Americans. We don't really mind saying it. Right. (laughs) We believe it and we say it. (laughs) We're saying it, yeah. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit. You are someone that decided to get into politics later in life mm. relative to yeah, most, most of my colleagues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I had Andrew Yang on this podcast a, a while ago. And in a way similar to you, he's a man that really lived a life prior to probably even strongly considering, let alone going for it. And he kind of, he wrote a memoir about it as well and described the experience of campaigning as just sort of constant. Humiliation and um, it really, the the way he told it, it was not something you would ever want to do lightheartedly. It's a decision you really have to, you really have to mean it and you really have to want it and have thought mm. through all of the costs. So I'm curious, what is it that made you take the
1: plunge? Naivety. I didn't know what I was getting into. Mm. I mean, how not to be a politician is a story about my going in with a lot of the naivety that I think many of us have about politics. If you've not been a professional politician, most of these people that you're talking to have entered politics in their 20s, volunteering, being staffers, being on the hill, doing all this kind of stuff, volunteering for their local parties, having mentors who are politicians, loving the game.
0: Mm.
1: You know, I was just reading the autobiography of Donald Rumsfeld. It's an extraordinary story. I did not quite realise his. Working career was a third of the entire length of the United States. Guy entered oh. Congress in his mid-20s. He was the youngest defense secretary in the United States under Ford and the oldest defense secretary under George W. Bush. And he was just a politician through and through. And you got a sense that this was something that he'd taken up in his early 20s and he just knew all the games. Lyndon Johnson would be another example for mm. the Democratic side. Oh, and of course, President Biden. You know, he's a veteran politician of all politicians. You can sort of see him as that kind of guy in his early 20s, clean cut, beautifully mm-hmm. presented, mm-hmm. already a kind of senator in the making. And I wasn't like that at all. My idea of politics is the kind of idea that we all have at school where we have kind of black and white photographs of, I don't know, Gandhi or Nelson Mandela on the wall and it's this kind of noble thing and we're going to change the world. It's got no relationship at all to campaigning, to the party whip, to legislation, to anything like this. And I got into it and of course I discovered what it really feels like to be a legislator in a parliament. To raise money. You know, I have friends in the US Congress who say they spent 110,000 hours in two years just making fundraising calls.
0: Yeah, that doesn't surprise me.
1: Mitt Romney said to me, he came to see me at Harvard just before I stood for the, the, the British Parliament and said, Rory, get all your thinking done now, because when you're a politician, you're never going to be able to think. Mm. And I think it is so, I mean, this, this book, How Not to Be a Politician, is a book which is not just about Britain. of course, the story is about Britain, but I hope it's a bigger story about democratic politics. And one of the central themes is how destructive, destructive it is to your mind, your body, and your soul. I write about John Kerry a bit in the book, Mm. Al Gore,
0: and how I- Kerry does not come off very well.
1: No, it was a strange encounter. Nor nor
0: does David Cameron. Nor does David Cameron,
1: no. And I think it's because something about the strains of the job uh, make them into permanent public figures. They lose their private side. They're on message all the time. Mm. That I felt with John Kerry, he was like meeting a Roman senator on his way to becoming a marble statue. <laughs> you know, I've got a lot of admiration for him. But boy, oh boy, if you sit at a dinner table with Al Gore at one end and John Kerry at the other, that's not a happy dinner party conversation, I can assure you. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, One of them's talking about carbon parts per million. The other one's trying to remember the names of obscure Afghan tribes. They're just projecting down the table.
0: Neither one of them is listening to a word anyone no, else says. Absolutely. I've yeah. had that experience with some politicians. I won't name.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a very strange, but it, but it does something to you. Yeah. And then the question for the public is... Why would you like, want someone like that running your country? Because actually the problem with that is that that style of campaigning and promoting yourself is very bad when you sit around a cabinet table and have to make decisions Mm. because you've trained yourself to be 100% confident all the time, 100% simplifying, having the solution to every problem. You're the person in charge. And suddenly you're confronted with COVID and you have to learn how to say, whoa, I've never seen this before, I've never heard of this before. I've got no idea what the do masks work, don't they work? You know, is the Chinese lockdown working or isn't it? Should we be vaccinating? Should we be closing schools? What impact it's gonna have on the economy? Mm. You know, what are my values here? And these are things that really require unbelievable humility and introspection and time and days of sitting and really thinking through fuck. What risks am I prepared to take? Where do we want to be in two years? So, and boy, we don't get those politicians. Mm.
0: Is it that we don't get those politicians because in some way we get what we deserve? Are Is the superficiality and all the problems you've highlighted with most career politicians, is it the fact that we actually want this? We hate it and we might hate the results of it, but we actually, when we pull the lever, this is what we appear to want? Or is it something else? Is it that we're only being given a set of options that are subpar because of how the options get filtered before we even get the chance.
1: I think it's a bit of both. I think on your first point, getting what we want, I think there's a side of us all that quite likes larger-than-life, hyperconfident bullshitters. Mm-hmm. And that's why people vote for Boris Johnson in Britain or Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Or actually a lot of politicians who may not be quite such egregious populists but who have some of the same kind of macho swagger because there's part of us that just wants to throw a hand grenade at the whole system and likes the sense i mean boris johnson who was my kind of arch nemesis i ran to be prime minister against boris johnson he beat me but so maybe what i'm saying is tinged a little bit with bitterness but one of the most revealing things he said is i'm successful because i'm the only politician who realizes that the public thinks that we're all schmucks and I'm open about being a schmuck, and people love that. And that's
0: also Donald Trump to a T.
1: Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Right. And I can totally see
0: why that works. Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas somebody like me who is, you know, boring on about complicated technical policy issues, sort of agonizing about moral choices, a lot of the public look at it and just think this guy's a hypocrite. It's bullshit. It's just a different type of bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel safer with somebody who at least <laughs> is open about being a lying philandering, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't want some sort of tortured, would-be saint.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But you're also right with your second point, which is that, boy, do we not get a good choice because our party systems and the way in which the media works does not help produce nuanced, thoughtful people. I mean, I I am a huge admirer of Obama. Mm -hmm. I thought President Obama was an extraordinary intellect, an extraordinary orator. Nobody else could have pulled off the the Iran nuclear deal. This is a very good example of where his intellect came to play, where he really made a difference particularly in things like foreign policy. And he was a freak in the sense that it was total chance that this very young senator managed to sort of make it through the system because Hillary Clinton kind of blew herself up and Mm -hmm. nobody was betting on he was a rank outsider. Somehow he made it. But he's the exception, not the rule. We don't have a system that's providing us with that kind of option most of the time.
0: I think you mentioned that in your case, you really narrowly were able to even run in the first place because of an, the expense scandal, which maybe you can explain briefly. Most of my audience will be American and won't, sure. won't know about that. And all of these doors fortuitously opened that then closed kind of right after you yeah. got through. It's them.
1: incredibly lucky. So the fact is I'd not been a member of a political party. I'd spent most of my life working outside the United Kingdom. I was a professor at Harvard. That sh- would normally have totally disqualified me. running to be a member of parliament because it's a process controlled by the party and they want to check that you've got the right party views you are proper conservative you know how have you voted have you delivered enough leaflets have you proved your loyalty and i was very lucky because in 2009 there was a terrible scandal where it was revealed that a lot of members of parliament had been cheating on their expenses or not quite cheating but bending them pretty crazily they were using public money to clear out the moats in their house or buy little houses for their ducks and when this was all exposed and all these guys had to resign mostly guys there were some women too but mostly guys resigned and suddenly they were scrabbling around trying to find members of parliament for all these constituencies and most of the ambitious politicians had already signed themselves up for other places so there were these vacancies everywhere and David Cameron, who was then the leader of the Conservative Party, said he wanted to change politics and bring in people from the outside who'd never been in politics before. So I took him at his word and I stood up and there was an open primary in which everybody from every party or no party, anyone in the place could vote. And I was lucky enough to be able to do that. But as you say, after I was elected, they closed all their doors, they shut the open primaries, they right. stopped this kind of selection. Nowadays, you would only really be able to get in if you had been basically a party member since you were at at college. Right.
0: And you were were viewed by other party members as not fire-breathing enough, a little bit mushy middle, as they say. Yeah. Uh, Not conservative enough, right? So you're the kind of guy that only can have success in an open primary, right? Correct. Yeah, I can only get an
1: open primary because I can only appeal to the center. Right.
0: Yeah. 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 Right. And obviously, I think that's one of the biggest problems with the electoral system, certainly in America, is that the vast majority of places don't have open primaries, so... Um, And then there's these other ideas like uh, rank choice voting, approval voting, and I don't know if you have views on any of this stuff, um, but do you see, what what other changes do you see that are...
1: Well, I mean, I I don't know how many of these things are implementable in any of our countries because politicians... Don't want to be turkeys voting for Christmas. They don't want to change a system that's benefited them. Mm
0: -hmm. But sorry, I've never heard that expression before. That's beautiful. Turkeys voting for Christmas. I guess I guess I guess
1: you'd say turkeys voting for Thanksgiving. I guess you tend to kill turkeys more at Thanksgiving. Okay, get it. We eat we eat a lot of turkey at Christmas. (laughs) Yeah, but they, um, yeah. If I had my way in these countries, I would put in an element of proportional representation. I'd go for something more like the New Zealand system where you keep some connection between the representative and the district, but you balance it out so that the vote for parties across the country is represented in parliament and you break the two-party system. Mm -hmm. You end up with four or five parties and you can bring some fresh blood in, you can bring a bit more diversity in. Mm. And you give a bit more freedom of movement to people to be able to enter without being choked by these primary systems.
0: So you say at one point in the book that the Scandinavian model doesn't work for Britain. And this was part of a larger explanation about uh, about why, uh, why you are conservative rather than labor. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so
1: it's it's a difficult one because a British conservative is a very strange thing. I would probably and I would certainly be a democrat in the United States. I would not be a republican in the in the US Republican Party. But for me a lot of this is about being suspicious of strong central government and believing in the wisdom of people and decentralizing them and letting people get on with things. And I feel that's true not just of politics. It's true of economic decision-making. I And I felt it so strongly in Iraq and Afghanistan. If I go back to where I began with, which is people saying everybody in this country is committed to a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, rule law. I'm just like, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. What you need to do is recognize the texture of these different communities and these villages and their wants and their needs and their priorities, which are totally different each from the other. So, I believe in the wisdom of communities. I believe in really nurturing that. I I think I'm probably more comfortable with the idea of being a mayor than a, a national representative. And- Why is that? Because I think as a mayor, you are much more directly accountable for things that make a real difference in people's daily lives. And they can literally stop you in the shop and poke you in the chest and say, what's wrong with the traffic lights out there? Why is mm-hmm. the police doing this? And you can fix it. Whereas if you're a senator, you're so far away from the ground, you're not really in a position to fix those
0: kind of things. So I had Garrett Jones on my podcast a while ago. He's an economist from George Mason University. He has- a controversial book called 10% Less Democracy, where he argues that while democracy is great up to a point for preventing horrible wars, famines, et cetera, that beyond a certain point, actually the people don't know what's best and it's better to keep power in the hands of elites. And he gives ex- simple oh, examples that's a, like-
1: so, That's a pretty unfashionable argument. Oh yeah. No, no. <laughs> yeah.
0: But he gives he he actually gives at least one compelling yeah. example. An o- obvious yeah. one is an independent federal reserve. Right. right? Like the fact that the president yeah. cannot fire, the people cannot fire the head yeah. of the federal yeah. reserve who sets rates very important. Yeah. Who are we keeping it independent yep. from? In some sense, the people.
1: Yeah. Okay. And in Britain, judges and our courts are like that.
0: They're not politically
1: mm. appointed. Mm-hmm. There's none of this stuff that you have in the US of the president stacking the Supreme Court. Mm. They're much more like your Federal Reserve. They're totally independent. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that that model works better? I believe uh, generally the other direction. I'm a kind of more radical democracy guy, but I do think that you need to be challenged by a fully independent judiciary. I think it's mm-hmm. a problem in the States as the Supreme Court is politicized. Mm-hmm. Our judges are totally not politicised. I think mm-hmm. that's it's better, that situation. Britain. I agree with him about an independent central bank. I agree that in certain things, actually, such as foreign policy, I disagree with Jake Sullivan, the national security Advisor, who keeps talking about a foreign policy for the middle class. And, you know, what do people in Detroit think about exactly what we're doing in our West Balkans policy or our policy towards Sudan? It's a mad question. They're not thinking about that most of, of the time. They don't have time to. Of course not. Yeah. But on the other hand, I believe in more democracy. I'm a great believer in citizens' assemblies, where you randomly select 300 people, totally demographically representative, but random, like a jury. And you let them sit down for six, seven days in a room with experts and really get their teeth into an issue. Could be abortion, could be in Britain something like Brexit, leaving the European Union, could be climate policies in your community. And it produces the most magnificent results. It's kind of transformatory. It it sounds crazy, Hmm. because these are totally... Um, randomly selected people. And yet they consistently produce better results than Hmm. elected politicians.
0: Interesting. So um, speaking of Brexit, what is your viewpoint on Brexit or from the vantage point of 2023?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, to remind American listeners, we left the European Union. We voted to leave the European Union in 2016. There was a huge fight about how we would do it. It was a 52, 48% vote by the public. And once that vote had happened, in retrospect, there was nothing to be done about it. You can't have the majority of your public be asked a question, vote to do something and not do it. Mm-hmm. But I tried to go for the softest version of Brexit. So say, okay, fine, we'll leave the political institutions, the EU, because remember, Americans, I think, don't fully understand how the European Union worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, European Union, from the British point of view, was supposed to be more like NAFTA, the yeah. kind of relationship you have with Canada or Mexico. It's kind of free trade area. But it had become something with its own parliament, its own civil service, its own commission, So I tried to argue, okay, let's, fine, you're leaving the European Union. I'd been on the Remain side. I want to stay in the European Union. But if we're going to leave, let's leave the political institutions. But let's keep this open trading relationship because it's vital for our economy. It's vital for Northern Ireland and the Republic. So the Good Friday Agreement that brought peace to Northern Ireland was based on the fact that there were no borders. So that if you were an Irish Republican living in Northern Ireland, because of no borders, you could feel you were living in Ireland. And if you were a, a British unionist living in Northern Ireland, you could feel you were living in Britain because there's no, you can move freely between the two. It was a fantastic solution to a problem that had killed thousands of people. Mm. But of course, I was defeated. And Boris Johnson went in and went for a very hard Brexit that ended up putting borders in the Irish Sea, massively disrupting our economy. And... Their dream, which was that by leaving the European Union, they were going to be able to kind of radically deregulate and create a kind of Singapore on Thames mm-hmm. and make these amazing trade deals with the US and China, and of course, proved to be deluded. And so we're now in a, a very difficult situation, but a situation where none of the political parties are prepared to talk about a closer relationship with the European Union.
0: Mm. Okay, let's pivot a little bit. I, I know the uh, the problem of global poverty, extreme poverty, is uh, is, is very important to you, and specifically the, the idea of direct cash transfers Mm. to people. So I guess talk a little bit about that. You know, I I guess I'll, I'll say something first, which is my understanding not having looked at the data closely but every few months you know i'll read an article in the economist or something about global poverty is that in my lifetime it's continued to come down remarkably but very much as a china effect in particular and and yeah. an india effect yeah. to some extent right like the rise of china yeah. from 1970 yeah. or 80 to yeah. today yeah. accounts for a good deal of what looks like the global progress in yeah. alleviating so is that your understanding and how do cash transfers yeah. play a role well,
1: so Fussy, you're absolutely right. We have a shocking problem with extreme poverty in the world. And yes, there are some statistics that look positive, but they're largely about the fact that China lifted 700 million people out of extreme poverty. If you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, there were 170 million living in extreme poverty in 1980, and there are 470 million people living in extreme poverty in Sub-Saharan Africa today. And that's partly to do with population growth, but even as a proportion of the populations in many of these countries, the numbers are going in the wrong direction. And when I talk about extreme poverty here, we're talking about people living on less than a couple of dollars a day. These are people who will be eating will be able to eat once every day or once every two days, who almost certainly will not have a roof on their house, who will not have access to electricity, who will not be able to afford a cow for milk or a calf or a goat. They will not have the slightest bit of money to even start a tiny small business. They won't be able to get a little tailoring shop off the ground or above So they've got no hope. They are they do not have enough money to meet their most basic needs, and their children will be malnourished. Many of their children will not be in school because schools, although they're meant to be free, are not really free. You have to pay a bit of money. can't really go to school if you've got no money at all. They won't be able to access healthcare. So that's the problem. And then we come to the solution. And the amazing discovery, which people still don't understand over the next 15 years, is that you can transform people's lives by giving them cash. It sounds completely crazy because the whole development model for 70 years has been about people like me going around the world turning up in villages and telling them what to do. There was this great cliché, which is... Teach a man to fish, you know, he eats for a lifetime, give him a fish, he eats for a day. Mm -hmm. And giving them cash seems like the most amazing fish giving program. So instead of which, we've been going around teaching everybody to fish, which basically involves pompous people like me, or it doesn't need to be somebody from the global north. It could even be somebody from the capital city in the country. Turning up in a pretty expensive car with a nice salary, turning up in a village and educating them. Mm -hmm. Teaching them how to set up a business, teaching them what their kids should be eating, you know, how to improve nutrition for your children. And nobody counted how much that cost. Nobody said, "Wait a second, if we take all the money that we're spending on all these nonprofits doing that, and we just gave it to them in cash, what would happen?" Hmm. And then radically, 15 years ago some economists from Harvard and MIT, young graduate students, set off with $40,000 to Kenya, set up this little organization called GiveDirectly, and just started giving out cash. And then they studied the impact. And they began doing randomized control trials, which are like a medical trial, where you randomly select one group of people who are getting the normal programs for the NGOs, and you count how much money they're getting. Hmm. This is the benchmark studies. And then you take the same amount of money, you just give it out as cash. And then you study them over 3, six, nine, 12 years. Or the full randomized control trial, you find random selection of people who aren't getting cash and a random selection of people to whom you give cash, but randomly selected so you know it can be measured and study over three, six, nine, twelve years. And the cash just outperforms. It's miraculous. Hmm. And we know it works. So when somebody comes to you and says, well, isn't that counterintuitive? Are they not going to steal the money? Are they Are not going to drink the money? Are they not going to mm-hmm. take drugs? We can point to these trials and say,
0: look at the data. Does it matter if you give the money to, say, women as opposed to men, for example? So
1: women and men do slightly different things for the money, but actually, surprisingly, men are not as irresponsible as you would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that, that was the implication behind my Yeah, gosh. Yeah, no, of,
1: often <laughs> the idea is you give to women, they uh, spend the money better. Of women often spend the money more on children and domestic environment, men a little bit more on setting up small businesses. But Mm -hmm. over time, people, women and men in poor communities know how to put their money to work. Mm -hmm. And I think just a couple of small things out of that. I mean, I think one is that before the randomized control trials came along, what all of us who worked in development did, you know, I ran a charity in Afghanistan, We would say, okay, I ran a little program in this village and 10 years later, here's this lovely girl who's now going to college. That's because of my program. Nobody ran a randomized control trial to really ask, is it really because of your program? Mm -hmm. Or could it be to do with a hundred other factors in Mm -hmm. the girl's life, which when you actually randomize it, you can tell whether your program's making a difference or not. And the second thing I think is the discovery that people in very poor villages know what their priorities are, Mm -hmm. completely differently. And their priorities will be very different, one house to the next. You might want to, I don't know, get your kids into school. I might want to get an aunt into hospital. You might want to fix your roof. I might want to buy a cow. You might want to start a small business. All the way around the village. And the cash flows down like water into a rough mountain landscape, filling all those gaps Mm. in a way that no other program could. Because that old cliche, you know, give a man a fish eats for a day, teach him to fish eats for a lifetime. What we realized is that many of the villagers already know how to fish. They just don't have the money for a fishing hook or they don't want to fish. They want to open a tailoring shop or a bakery.
0: In a way, there is something very F.A. Hayek about this um, insight that it's really about the distribution of knowledge. It's about the fact that outsiders don't have the detailed, local, specific knowledge necessary to know which problems need to be fixed. And so there's, it's less efficient than simply just giving everyone cash and letting each individual who knows their own circumstance better than any outsider could apply that, right? Exactly.
1: And, and that's why I'm so proud of GiveDirectly. And they've also been very smart with technology. I mean, they, uh, I mean, d- to declare an interest, I was president of GiveDirectly. I'm now senior advisor of GiveDirectly. And there are other organizations that, that do this. But what they're doing, which I think is so powerful, is they're using mobile money. So in, in Africa now, everybody's banking on their phones. So mm-hmm. you can deliver the money directly to someone's phone. And there are no middle people. Mm-hmm. So an old grandmother can get the money on her phone. Nobody knows how much she's got. It's hidden on the account on her mm-hmm. phone. And GiveReckly then invests in the monitoring and the evaluation and the follow-up and a little bit of conversations about what she's going to do with the money before she receives it. But it's unconditional. At most, what you're doing is you're saying, look, would you like to come and visit the neighbouring village that got some money six months ago and see what they did with it? Absolutely up to you, but you might be interested. Or if you're thinking of going into agriculture, you know, there is this government extension worker who can talk about fertilisers and pesticides, but it's your, it's your call, it's your money. There's something wonderfully humble about it because it's it's not somebody in the global north getting the the vanity and the ego boost of thinking I fixed someone's problems. You know, I've invented a special seesaw, which when you pump it up and down produces water, or I've worked out that chickens have eggs and eggs have chickens. So I've given chickens to people. Mm-hmm. It's saying, wait a second, what do I know about whether these people want chickens? Well, chickens may be the last thing they want for a whole series of reasons. I can't begin to contemplate.
0: I'm sure you've heard about the infamous example of, uh, the water pumps in Africa that were powered by, um, what do I think talking? are the round, round, yeah. roundabouts? Yeah. 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 And uh, they they work so terribly, and they they're like it, it, every all the westerners felt so good about what they had done, only to have these poor African grandmothers pushing you these know, things, yeah, around. just slaving away at at yeah. at this totally inefficient water system,
1: and, and nobody asking how many millions have we spent on this, yeah. Whereas what we're finding is we're giving money to households and they are, I mean, just to give you the results, you look at a village on the Rwanda-Burundi border, you find that within about three months of the cash arriving, they have gone from 40% of people with electricity to 80% from a third of people with livestock to nearly 80% with livestock. You've got every roof in the village has been fixed. Everybody who didn't have a toilet has got a toilet. Bone density's improved. Stunting's improved. Nutrition in general's improved. Education enrollment has improved. Small businesses are flourishing. And you're doing it for very little money. You're only giving $700,000 per household. Mm. If you commissioned a government or a non-profit and said, those are all the indicators we want you to deliver, they would spend untold millions surveying those buildings, bringing in engineers, trying to fix all the problems themselves, setting up complicated business training. You can imagine. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that, well, I suppose it's two things. It's much more efficient way of achieving development, but it's also giving dignity to people. It's really trusting them to fix
0: their own lives. Okay, so two small objections or thoughts people may have to this model is one, inflation, and two, uh, disincentives from work.
1: So uh, inflation is a, is a good thing to be worried about. When you put cash into an economy, you've always got to worry about inflation. The truth of the matter is, though, because these are relatively small amounts of money and because, very sadly, the extreme poor are a very small part of these economies because they have very little money, mm-hmm. we are not seeing big inflation impacts. There was a, a careful study, partly with Oxford University in Kenya, called General Equilibrium study, specifically focused on inflation. And it didn't find inflation really at all. I mean, very small amounts of inflation. What it did find was something we weren't expecting, which was an incredible spillover effect that for every dollar we were putting into a village, there was $2.50 benefit going to the surrounding villages because mm. the village getting the money was employing carpenters, buying cows, fixing roofs from people, in the, or buying goods or selling goods to the surrounding villages. Mm. So the economic stimulus was, was very impressive. Disincentivizing work, again, I think it's important to understand that this is different from poverty in the United Kingdom or the United States. Th- these are people who are literally on the edge of starvation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: who have spent 20 years sleeping on a dirt floor with a grass roof that is leaking with their kids starving in front of them. And in the United Kingdom, poverty, yes, it's about cash, but it's not only about cash. It's about, you know, I was the prisons minister and in our prisons at the moment, 50% of people have various forms of mental health issues. 40% have been removed from their families, put in care when they were kids. 35% have been excluded from school. There are huge addiction issues. And fixing somebody's, not fixing, but helping somebody's life, supporting them when they leave prison is about housing. It's about employment. It's about addiction treatment, it's about mental health support, it's about many, many other things. Hmm. Whereas if you're looking at a village on the Rwanda-Burli border, there will be 3.7 million people, everybody in all those communities is living in extreme poverty. And their fundamental problem is that they simply do not have enough money to put food on the table.
0: Okay. that's uh, We covered a lot of ground there. The book is How Not to Be a Politician. And uh, the website organization is givedirectly.org. So- um, Unless there's anything else you want to plug for my audience? This was a great. Well, I would would plug for your audience and say that you're a great interviewer. And
1: I'm going to take this inspiration when I go see Arnold Schwarzenegger tomorrow. Thanks very much. Good luck, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you.
0: Thanks for recording. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.